Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do tell your friends, family, and colleagues about the show. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we are exploring the world of regenerative agriculture. And we're taking a close look at Farmer Angus. Now, Farmer Angus is both an individual, Angus McIntosh, who is a farmer, and Farmer Angus is also a social enterprise. They're based in South Africa and they embrace regenerative farming practices. And I have to tell you that my wife and my kids, we were on holiday in South Africa a few weeks ago and were privileged to a behind the scenes tour of this wonderful establishment. Angus showed us around and as my daughters say, they were the friendliest chickens that they ever met. It was a great experience and we're going to be talking a little bit about what's regenerative agriculture all about and we're going to be looking a little bit at the market and the business environment for this and also Angus's personal story. Without further ado, Angus, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Alberto, such a privilege to be with you again. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about regenerative agriculture. What's that all about? Yeah, it's a great question. Most people assume that agriculture is regenerative. The tragedy is that most of agriculture is destructive. And there are any, actually only two types of farmers. There are regenerative farmers and destructive farmers. And why farming is of relevance to the, the man on the street is twofold. Firstly, nothing destroys the environment more than farming, A. And B, we're all farmers by proxy. And what I mean by that is it's a Wendell Berry quote where he proposes that every person who eats gives their authority or their proxy to that farmer to farm on the, in the way that the farmer deems appropriate. So every time you go down to the shop and you choose an orange, you've authorized that farmer who supplied that orange to farm in the way that they deem appropriate. Now, they are either building up the environment or they're destroying the environment. There's no neutrality. So for me, before we can talk about what is regenerative agriculture, we, we need to understand why is there such a thing as regenerative agriculture? And most importantly, why is there a need for regenerative agriculture? And I, I, I know you talk, your podcast talks about sustainability. Sustainability is actually a word that we've banned on the farm for a very simple reason that whatever metrics we look at, whether it's human uh, cancer rates, whether it's male sperm counts, whether it's female eggs, whether it's topsoil in the oceans, whether it's plastic in the fish, wherever you want to measure the health of the planet and its inhabitants, the charts are going the wrong way. There's nobody, I have yet to come across somebody who can say that things are great and getting better. So in my opinion, and I, and I quote Vandana Shiva here, I'm not sure if you've ha had her on your show, um, an Indian physicist turned farmer, the most amazing woman. Vandana Shiva has a very simple phrase, human beings are committing species-wide suicide. And agriculture, in my words now, is the blunt weapon, primary blunt weapon through which, with which we're doing it. Now, the, the paradox of agriculture, unlike mining, for example, is that it can reverse this damage. It has this amazing regenerative possibility or capability. And there are examples of it around the world and some countries are further down the track and others aren't. But at its heart, regenerative agriculture 
accomplishes three things. The first thing is it reverses the damage to the environment. And we can talk specifics around how, 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 and how that works. The second is that it creates meaningful employment as opposed to mechanized AI robotics. And the third thing that it does is it produces nutrient-dense food. Now, the one thing that everybody in agriculture agrees on is that over the last, I'm not sure, 100 years, 120 years, the nutritional content of food has been in decline. The carrots our grandparents ate, if, if I mean, my grandparents, I'm, I'm assuming your grandparents aren't alive either. Mine, mine aren't uh, alive today. But if we got our grandparents to taste the carrots that are being sold in the shops today, they would never. They wouldn't believe that it looks like a carrot, but it doesn't have any of the nutritional advantages. Or, you you got to dip it in a lot of hummus. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, you know, we joke and we laugh about it. But that's fundamentally why we are sick as human beings. So tell me about the work that's happening at Farmer Angus, and you guys are based in Stellenbosch. So we're based on a on a wine farm outside of Stellenbosch called Spear S P I E R. Uh, we lease the land from the owners. They've um, put in a bit of, quite a bit of money behind us and, and, and we put the rest in. So they're so very supportive of this, this movement. And we do a couple of very simple things. The first thing to understand about regenerative agriculture is livestock is a critical part of this whole operation. In fact, you can't do it without livestock. And I do hope we, we get an opportunity a little bit later to talk about the complete ecological particularly and to a lesser degree health disaster that veganism and lab-grown meat and plant foods are which i would like to talk about a little bit later but just be that as it may we use animals we we apply what's called rotational grazing with these animals it's a very simple principle a lot of animals small space short period of time moved regularly obviously the short period of time followed by a long rest period. And that's, that is at the heart of everything. So it's pressure on, pressure off. Pressure on, pressure off. Um, the result of that is you are increasing the carbon content in the soil. We've been paid for that increased carbon in the soil. The, we were the first farm in the world actually to be paid carbon credits for increasing the carbon content in the pastures where the cattle graze. Now, a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of your visits, speakers on your podcast have been quite denigrating of the carbon story. And people will say, oh, Shell buys carbon credits so they can just continue to keep polluting. It's a way to assuage their guilt. And, and there's an element of truth to that. However, in our case, the carbon exchange or a, a group that we go through have a very interesting policy. 50% of the net income comes to us and 50% goes to our staff. It's a group called Credible Carbon. They're based out of Cape Town. And the result was in 2020, we got a, our biggest payout to date. And our cattle herdman got a 100,000 rand bonus and bought himself a house in Zimbabwe. That's real change from carbon credits. R real profound change in people's lives. Uh, okay, so what do we do? Rotate animals around the farm. We have long rest periods. We're fortunate that we can irrigate in summer and it rains in winter. So that's another thing that, you know, what I can do, my neighbor can't necessarily do, and someone a couple of hundred Ks probably can't do, and certainly in another continent is going to struggle. But the, 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 the philosophies and principles remain the same, whether you're doing it in the outback in Australia or in Virginia in the States or down here in Stellenbosch. It's the same story. 
What you're basically doing is you, it's, you're doing a form of what they call biomimicry. So we're mimicking nature. Which are the richest soils in the world? The American prairie soils. How were they created? They had thousands and thousands, millions of herds of bison roaming the prairies, moving off, waiting, and then coming back. And there was this, this pulsing, this regenerative pulsing. They're still mining those soils with corn in the States. And, and so the, the, the centrality of carbon is really important to understand. And I mean, Charles Eisenstein has a very valid point that by, by getting the climate or, or, the, or the, people, the people in the world who care about the environment, which sadly is a minority, to get them solely focused on CO2 is a mistake because we then try and come with a single source, technocratic, technology-heavy solution. Whereas actually, yes, CO, CO2 is a problem. But there's a hell of a lot of other problems around them. But just to focus on one thing, you're going to lose focus on the others. And so, what? but why does carbon matter? Because there's, there's a school that also saying, oh, CO2 in the atmosphere is good. It helps plants grow. That might be the case. I prefer having carbon in the soil because more carbon in my soil means my soils hold more water. It means they hold more nutrients, which means the plants growing in the soil are healthier. The animals eating the plants are healthier. The humans eating the plants are healthy. Animals are healthier. It's a healthy society. Explain to us a little bit that difference, because I know the agriculture sector is one of the biggest emitters of, of CO2 and greenhouse gases. Uh, what is the difference then between regenerative agriculture and traditional uh, methods that we would see uh, throughout most of the world and, and what that means for carbon? It's very simple. The traditional farmer or conventional farmer, the, his, the carbon content in his soils is in decline all the time. The regenerative farmer is increasing the carbon content in his soils. It's literally as simple as that. Now, let's move from that to the vegan issue, which is this. In the vegan utopia, there are no animals, which means in, in the organic regenerative world, you use animals. You use the bodies of animals, the blood of animals, and then particularly the manure and urine of animals to make fertilizer and compost, which you use to grow the plants. What happens in the vegan utopia, there are no animals, and you continue to grow plants like most people have been growing plants for the last 100 years, which is through artificial fertilizer made through the Haber-Bosch process. Cornell University did a study in 2018 with Environmental Defense Group where they, where they looked at the methane emissions of the U.S. fertilizer industry, which produces these fertilizers to grow all these plants. The methane emissions, and, and you know, as you know, methane is 24, depending on who you speak to, 24 or 100 times the global warming potential of CO2. It's a much more dangerous gas than CO2. The U.S. fertilizer industry, one industry, emits three times more methane than all other industries in the USA combined. So to go plant-based for ecological reasons is literally speeding up the demise. Uh, what about the market itself? So tell us a little bit about where the company, Farmer Angus, uh, operates. What does it look like for, for, for pricing? What does it look like for consumer awareness, consumer behavior? What's the state of affairs with regards to the market in which you operate? Okay. I do think that there are more and more people becoming aware of what's wrong in the food system and wanting to feed themselves better food and people being more interested in what we're doing. So our sales over time have increased. The big increase has happened since going into retail. 
and we're not fully in retail yet. It's it's uh, an epic, epic thing to get into retail with logistics and packaging and stock. It's it's quite a thing for a little company like ourselves. I mean, we're still a very small company, but it is growing. Um, and I do believe that regenerative agriculture can only become a mainstream thing once you're in with retail. So a lot of people are, oh, you're going to retail, you're selling your soul to the devil. I've actually been treated really well. The guys pay me well. Of course, I have to pay a penalty to get my money early. But I'm I'm being very well treated by the big retailers. I'm I'm blessed to have done that. Um, so I do think the market for regenerative agriculture, for cleaner food is growing. No, but South Africa is very far behind. You know, the fact that uh, we are the only guys in South Africa producing cured meat or charcuterie without added nitrites, nitrates, and phosphates, and have been for three years now, three or four years now, I mean, we're still the only guys. In the US, a lot of the charcuterie, and I saw this in 2013 already, was being produced in this cleaner manner. So I think the European and the US market is quite a lot ahead of South Africa in, in, that, in that aspect. Um, and so you say the appetite in South Africa is growing for this. Yes. And you want to get into that retail side. And you are in retail to some extent. But it's not, as you pointed out, it's not that you walk into any shop and you're, you're able to get your hands on a farmer Angus uh, product. Yeah. By the end of June, our products will be pretty much available all around the country because we'll be in with two national retailers, not our full product range, because then it comes down to the complexity of a beef carcass. Everybody wants steak, but steak at most is only 10% in total of the beef carcass. So what do you do with the other part of the carcass? <laughs> and so that's, 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 a, that's a butchery challenge. Um, now the pricing side, is it uh, going back to the market a little bit on yeah. the... Uh, Great question. On the pricing side, I mean, can you can you compete? So there's two elements to pricing, Alberto. The first element to pricing is what is our price, and the second element to pricing is what should competition stuff be on price. So as far as our price goes, our beef is selling at the same price as grain-fed feedlot beef. Our eggs are not the most expensive eggs in retail, but they are the most expensive eggs wholesale. Um, and that's because our production costs are just significantly higher than the caged egg system. And the other, and there's a few other guys who are doing what they call free range, but they just not as they don't do their foods not of the quality that we are. They don't pay their staff as well as we pay our staff. There's all, all sorts of reasons for that. Um, and how are you able to manage that sort of price parity to some extent? Well, we've got a brand. We work really hard on the brand. You know, we we tell our story and we're constantly refining our story. And we're changing our packaging all the time to put pictures of ourselves on front because people want to connect. To now, that story. is the feedback I, I, you know, before doing today's conversation, I, I tapped on the shoulder of a few South Africans and I said, what is it about this product? You know, what is it about Farmer Angus uh, and that food range that you, you like? And th those things about understanding the story, understanding what's, what is that food all about seem to come up over and over again, you know, knowing your food. Well, that's our mission. Try and know the food, come up with a solution for it. But the last thing I'd like to add um, on pricing is that my view is one of the problems in the world is that we do not apply true cost accounting. And I'm not having a go at accountants. I'm a management accountant by training. Accountants are generally bright people, almost all of them. You can't be stupid to be an accountant. However, 
sit an accountant around the table and say to him, price something true cost for me. And they won't. They won't know how to do it. Now, that's a, 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 we can talk about why it is that they can't do it, but they can't do it. So let's look at beef, for example. Grass, grain-fed feedlot beef. Let's just talk about the costs that should be in that meat, but are not in the meat. And I don't know where you want to start. So let's just jump. Let's, let's go alphabetically, Alberto. Let's start with antibiotic resistance. I think when you were on the farm, we, we chatted about antibiotic resistance and, and we chatted about the fact that a full 90% of all antibiotics go to animals and, not, and the 10% goes to humans, which is why when most humans get sick, they develop, the, the, the antibiotics don't make them better. And then the doctors have tried a different one and a different one and so it goes. Because they've, they've got antibiotic resistance for free in through their meat. So that's not in the price. Now, another thing that's not in the price is the inflammatory diseases that you get for free because the meat has an overload of omega-6. The omega-6 and 3s are out of balance because of the grain that that animal has been fed. So it's knocked the omega-6 and 3 ratio out because it's the wrong fats that metabolize the animals is acidic. Then there's environmental costs to the way the animal is finished, standing in its own manure. There's environmental costs the way the food, so-called food that is fed to that animal, is, is produced. You know, we can go on and on. There be the asthma drugs in the food, the growth hormones in the food in, 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 in the in the animals. No, we, we we've got to reach a stage where we do true cost accounting. Are you optimistic we're heading in that direction? You know, Alberto, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do a very cowardly thing, okay? And that is sit on the fence. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you why I'm sitting on the fence. I, I'm like you. I'm fundamentally an optimist. We are human beings, man. We are capable of the most immense things, beauty, harmony, love. We, 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 that's what we are fundamentally, I believe, as human beings. I, 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 in my deepest, deepest soul, that's what I believe we are. We have chosen, however, to manifest a different reality. And I, I believe that what's happening is people are waking up. I don't think enough people are going to wake up in time. So I'm, I'm super Armageddon-ish in my thinking. What I do also believe is that there'll, there, there'll, be, there'll never be a complete cataclysm. So it will wipe out a hell of a lot of people. But there's going to be enough of us who can make it through uh, to inherit a beautiful earth and rebuild it and, and, and i'm sound, sound a little bit biblical like that but but that's what i genuinely believe i i i think that, that i mean it's already obvious that the the, the story that we're going to be nine billion in 2050 is hogwash okay the population's in decline and is going to start soon going to precipitous decline now i can tell you the, the first thing the first hammer that's really going to break this this thing is the is the food price inflation I have no idea what's going on in the UK. I can just tell you here, food price inflation is a real problem. None of the things that have been put in place over the last two years, because it's not just Ukraine that's caused the spike in food prices. There's, it's been coming a lot longer than that. There's, there's been this deliberate destruction of the food system. And, and it's going to result in, in, in incredible pain and hunger and, and death. But as I said to you, the, the, it, it, within that, you can find optimism. Within that, you mix with people who, who light the room up, with people who, who smile, with people who care. There are enough of those around. 
but you've got to keep your family resilient. You've got to keep your health strong and you've got to be flexible to move. Because, because let's face it, Alberto, the capitalist system, which has done a lot of good, is fundamentally broken. Now, on that point, on that specific point, worth pointing out to our audience, you used to be a banker at Goldman Sachs here in London uh, 15 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. And now so you're a farmer in Southampton. 20 years ago, yeah. So I used to, I worked for Goldman Sachs just a little bit more than four years. I was um, doing what they call equity sales, which is a stockbroker, so selling equities. And let me tell you, I drank the Kool-Aid, man. I would never, 20 years ago, be having been able to have the conversation you and I have just had. I mean, I'd be sitting here watching this lunatic speak going, what are you talking about? Okay. So there's still, this is the interesting thing about the world. But what I can tell you is that the, the longer I've been out of the Goldman Sachs world, the, the, the more I've learned about nature, I have realized how, just how far we are taking the earth from, from nature. And, and, and that's what concerns me, is that all pendulums, the natural movement of pendulums to come back to the middle. And we just keep pushing this thing more and more extreme. We just got to be on it when it comes back, Alberto. What drove you for that? Uh, what drove you to that transition? I mean, and like you said, you know, if you if you could be watching yourself, if yourself from twenty years ago could be watching your, you today, you'd you'd probably be a, a, perhaps a little bit bemused. What made that transition happen? I mean, how did that? It's not the obvious career progression or a career trajectory that one would imagine going from uh, Fleet Street here in Goldman's to. Um, uh, to uh, a farm in Stellenbosch. Yeah, so the, so I, I'm going to have to disappoint you here. It wasn't a Damascene conversion. No, it's not like Paul that happened. It just wasn't that dramatic. It, it, it was an incremental thing, but there were some very clear steps along the way, and 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 the arc is a full be, be a full 180. The, the interesting thing was that I was still at Goldman, and I was actually at Goldman for it was. I was still there for two or three years after the, this thing happened, but I turned 30 there. And someone said to me, stop eating wheat. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? So, so I said, okay, I'll investigate it. And I suddenly realized I was eating wheat three or four times a day. And it was the first time, and I don't know who it was. And then I, I felt a lot better. But I wasn't feeling bad. I was cycling to work. I was gymming. I, I was feeling great, but I started feeling really good. And, and it was the first time that my I call them thought bubbles, or my, my paradigm was challenged. And that I think now was the crack in the foundation, because that then opens up the possibility that you can start questioning other things. When you can question something like random about what you eat. And, 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 and so I guess that's the first step. The second step was actually not going to Tokyo, because Goldman wanted us to go to Tokyo to go and do derivative sales. We decided we didn't want our children to grow up on the 23rd floor of a building in Tokyo. We then made the very big decision to cut the golden handcuffs and leave. We came back to South Africa with the intention of building a house. We had managed got opportunity to build a house on a farm. We ended up meeting lots of different architects. We really got on well with one who, guess what, is a green architect and builds clay houses. So I ended up building clay houses. Okay, so, so you see how far I've come already and, and, and I'm still, you know, I'm still not even near farming. And then I managed that building project for a few years. I started making wine. I started learning about biodynamics and permaculture. And then I read Michael Pollan's book. So if there's one book which I really believe 
most humans should read. It's Michael Pollan's book, P-O-L-L-A-N. It's called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And in it, he discusses the three systems that feed the world. Basically follows it from the beginning to the end. The middle system is a grass-based farmer meal from a guy in America called Joel Salatin in Virginia. And, and it just blew my mind. I put that book down. I said to my wife, I want to like, farm like Joel. That's what I want to do. And so that was June of 2008. And I started December of 2008. No, this is nearly 13 years now. Um, and again, I'm becoming more holistic, ballistic the longer I'm in this. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, but Alberto, there's, there's reasons. The reasons to be positive of this that we have the ability to regenerate. It's not a function of possibility. It's more function of probability. And, and so the, the optimism's got to do with the possibility and the, the, the concern's got to do with the probability. And, and if you look at the consciousness of politicians, of media, of academia, of business, it makes me believe that the probability is very low of allowing the possibility for this thing to regenerate. So now what we're going to do, because we're not being proactive in making the world a better place, we're not using the levers that we could use, nature's going to do it for us. Here's a question for you. So in, in your circle in South Africa, you, it's not just farmers who you're hanging out with, you're also connected within the business community as well. Does your uh, perception of your surroundings, does it reflect how others in your circles are thinking as well? Or do you find people close to you within the business community who are actually saying, look, Angus, you're a bit nuts. Um, things are just fine. <laughs> Listen, um, Alberto, you touch on, on, on another super interesting point. And that is one of the things that I believe is wrong in the English speaking world. And that is that there is a stigma or a negativity towards anyone who's not a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a podcast host. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. Take your pick, okay? Take your pick. Those are the uh, upper class of society. If you do anything with your hands, whether it's a farmer or an electrician or a plumber or a veteran, you're a second class citizen. I know. I've experienced it over the last 20 years. I was a big swinging dick at Goldman Sachs. Now I'm a farmer. Most of my life's like, what's wrong with you? So a lot of them I can't have these conversations with, okay? I think there are very few people, again, there are very few people in business who have realized the magnanimity of the problem. And again, one of my challenges to myself is to try and reach more people and explain the situation and take them along and explain how empowering you can be as a consumer to have a better world. How you can participate in pulling carbon into the soil, for example, how you can participate in paying people better wages. So in this, in this um, spirit of participation to improve things around you, uh, what uh, words of wisdom would you, would you share with, uh, with some of those folks working in some of these sky high rises today who might be thinking, yeah, you know what? I am reading up on the sustainability thing. It's not really something that makes me feel good right now. Um, if they're thinking about taking the plunge to some sort of, let's not say radical career departure, uh, but something perhaps a little bit analogous to what you did, what would you say to them? What should they do? Well, the first thing is abandon 
the plant-based story because you've got, and then abandon it once you've done the investigation as to why it's particularly ecologically, but also on a body count, such a disaster. Because that opens the world. It just it, it, it's a brilliant way to understand the whole system and, and also understand how you can, the empowering role that you as a consumer have. And so I, I think people should investigate where you're doing the most harm and see if you can reduce those things. I mean, I guess that's, you know, I should apply that to my own life, you know, but that's what we, if, if we all did a little bit less harm, things would just be better. What's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finished listening to today's show? As a consumer, as a consumer, you can literally eat your way to a better world. Love it. Perfect. Angus, look, thank you very much, both for the tour you gave us behind the scenes at Spear uh, a few weeks back, and also for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been really great having you on the show. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. You've been listening to a great chat with Angus McIntosh, also known as Farmer Angus. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show. For information about this episode and more than 150 other interviews with remarkable leaders in the world of philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Thanks as ever, and I'll catch you next week.